We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Well, hello there. How's it going? It's going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that in my bones. I know. We're recording on a different day, and it is felt, the change is felt. Yeah, we're recording in the evening, uh, two days before the episode comes out, so I'm going to have to bum rush this, but that was my fault for enjoying my time in New Orleans and not doing podcast research. <laughs> so I think that's a good excuse. Yeah. And funnily enough... I didn't realize it at the time, but this week's topic takes place in New Orleans. Nice. And if I would have realized that, I would have actually gone to this place. So uh, next time. I was very close. So today we'll be discussing Muriel's Jackson Square. Okay. And I just realized I didn't translate any of the French that's in this. So good luck. Oui, oui. Bon appetit. This is going to be a treat. <laughs> <laughs> so information was pulled from the following sources, a 2020 only in your state article by Jackie Ann, an 1891 Louisiana review article, Alice Obscura, find a grave, genie.com, the haunted places website, la galerie hotel blog posts, Two pages on Muriel's Jackson Square website and New Orleans Ghosts website. Nice. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. So in case the links didn't give it away, this is going to be paranormal. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's soups haunted. Uh, as someone who recently visited New Orleans, aka me, I can tell you <laughs> firsthand that they love their history especially their ghosts. Yep. And today's story starts with the founding of the city itself back in 1718. That late? Mm-hmm. That feels late, doesn't it? Yeah. Considering it's like a, well, it was a port town, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I think, I think by the founding of the city is like kind of when it was taken away from the natives, the native peoples. I'm just going to... This is I, mine now. 1718. Mine. Not yours. <laughs> I licked my finger and touched the ground, and it is now mine. It is now mine. A man named Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Benbiel founded New Orleans, which at that time was known as Ville de la Nouvelle Orleans. We're going to go with it. I think yeah. I'm doing great so far. It sounds, <laughs> sounds nice. It sounds fancy. I'm sure it's completely wrong. Upon its founding, a member of Jean-Baptiste's expedition party, 
a French-Canadian named Claude Trapagnon was granted a tract of land that would later become the spot we'll be discussing. Ooh, it was attractive. Mm-hmm. That's some nice-looking land over there. Can I have it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I like that boulder. That's a nice boulder. i <laughs> build my house on it. Claude, who was born on April 11th, 1671, went on to build a small cottage on the land he was granted, where he and his wife, Genevieve Elizabeth Burrell, who he married in Mobile, Alabama in 1704, along with their large Catholic family of seven children, lived for several years. That's so many children. That's a lot of children. That's a farm. Mm -hmm. That's a farm's worth of children. Yeah. From the start, the home was said to house a number of quote-unquote troubled spirits that Mm. are believed to be those of servants or slaves who had once upon a time been put on auction in that very area after coming off the boats. That's not great. No. Not good memories. No. No. Many clairvoyants have claimed over the years that servants used to be housed in this area in the evenings, like prior to them being sold. So they had plenty of time to just sit in a space and panic. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great. Great. So it's full of paranormal anxiety. Yep. <laughs> By 1721, New Orleans was divided up into a grid system with mm-hmm. the Place d'Armes, or parade grounds, at the center of the grid. This area would eventually go on to become Jackson Square. Okay. I went there. I saw it. It was pretty. Due to the arrangement of the grid system, Claude's home, which in 1722 was on the corner of Rue Saint-Anne and Rue de Conde, and the land that it resided on became a coveted spot, especially once the cathedral was built nearby. Yeah. You'd want to be close to church so you could just like wake up really late and show up. Just meander over. It only takes me an hour to get my petticoat and all that other stuff on. I can sleep in an extra hour. It's only 60 paces for me to get from my home to the cathedral. (laughs) And you poor schmucks have to take your carriage. (laughs) In the eyes of the French settlers of the area, the cathedral became the central point of the new city. That makes sense. Makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Claude passed away on November 21st, 1724, at the age of 53, and it's said that he died in Chatochas not long after he moved his family to a plantation near Kenner, Louisiana. According to his listing on Genie.com, he was killed by one of the native peoples while visiting Chauvin Delaris Plantation. Okay. So there must have been some sort of confrontation. Yeah. I was just going to say, in his 50s, though, at the time, it's a good life. Mm-hmm. But I suppose if he was real wealthy, he would have been expected to live a little longer. Well, just being wealthy doesn't make you immune to, like, yellow fever or cholera. It's true. It's true. But you do have access to better water and conditions. That's true. And, like, food that's not rotten. <laughs> that's true. At some point between 1743 and 1762, which I realize is a really large window of time, Mm -hmm. a man named Jean-Baptiste Destrand acquired the property following the death of Genevieve on April 6, 1739 at the age of 53. 
So the previous, so Claude's widow. Yeah. This John Baptiste was the royal treasurer of the French Louisiana colonies, which meant he was not only wealthy, but also powerful. Mm -hmm. He had the modest cottage torn down in order to build a more luxurious residence. As you do. To the surprise of no one. Yep. Jean-Baptiste Destron married his wife Catherine de Gauvry a few years after acquiring the property in 1745. The pair would go on to have seven children together (laughs) over the course of their time at the home. This is like a really messed up version of Groundhog Day. Yeah, seven's a fun number for people procreating. And they're both named Jean-Baptiste? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weird. Doesn't feel right. Doesn't taste right in my mouth. (laughs) No. Speaking of home, Mm -hmm. the new five-bedroom residence included a music room, drawing room, dining room, three cabinets. What? I don't know what that means. Three whole cabinets. I don't know what that means. Living luxuriously. Look at all of our cabinets. There's three. (laughs) What? A ballroom and a coach house with a kitchen. Okay, I really need to know what the big deal was with the cabinets. Because, like, to me, three cabinets is nothing compared to a ballroom <laughs> in your own home. Aren't they just big armoires? Yeah, they're, they're really, really ornate. Okay. So maybe the fact that they had three, well, probably, like... Well, once we get into it, that'll make sense. Ooh, are they... Is that where the spooks live? They wanted better housing. I'm going to choose this cabinet. <laughs> this one's mine. I like the woodwork. I like the detailing. It's nice. Since money was no object, it all contained all the best of imported goods. Linens, drapes, rugs, furniture, china, crystal, and silver, all imported from Paris. Ooh. So maybe that was a big deal that they had three giant armoires that were all imported from Full of France. Things. Full of French things. Jean-Baptiste's residence was second only to the French colonial governor's mansion, as far as opulence is concerned. Wow. Jean-Baptiste passed away in 1765 with his son, Jean-Baptiste Honor de Strand, inheriting the house following his death. Stop it. (laughs) We haven't even scratched the surface on the Jean-Baptiste. Oh my god, is there like 12 of them? Oh my god, no, there's 13. So many. There is so many Jean-Baptistes in the story. Stop. <laughs> That's actually the real haunting fact. Is how yeah. many Jean-Baptistes there are. Get out your bingo cards. <laughs> Which Jean-Baptiste are you? Once his family ran out of money, the home was sold at auction to Pierre Engrand Philippe de Marigny de Mandeville. He broke the curse. He did. Pierre, who was born on June 15, 1751, purchased the home in 1776 and used it nice. as one of his city homes whenever he had come into New Orleans from his plantation in today's Faubourg Marigny area. Okay. Disaster struck 12 years later on March 21, 1788, when the Great New Orleans Fire started on Good Friday and raised 856 of the 1,100 structures in the French Quarter. Yeah, that's not great. Of those, it included the main church, the original cabildo, the army barracks, armory, jail, and municipal building. 
Can you imagine being stuck in the jail when it burns down? All I could think about, honestly, was an armory going down and like all the artillery. Like like blowing up? Explosives. Yeah. Yeah. Like the 4th of July. (laughs) Baby, you're a firework. It's like extra spicy and full of death. (laughs) So much death. So much death. A portion of Pierre's mansion was also burnt. The fire was believed to have started thanks to a burning candle in the home of Don Vicente Nunez, the military treasurer, after his drapes went up in flames. That's a very sad and specific fact. <laughs> Not my drapes. Yeah. <laughs> his neighbor's house burns down halfway. <laughs> oh no, my drapes. <laughs> he tries to put it out and then he's just like, oh, this is not good. Yeah, <laughs> As the fire just spreads and goes from house <laughs> to house I'm going to go to, to work house. and see how they're doing. <laughs> Run away. Over the next 10 years, New Orleans slowly started to rebuild from the ashes of the Great Fire that decimated much of the French Quarter. The Spanish replaced the wooden buildings with thick brick ones that boasted arcades, elaborate courtyards, and wrought iron balconies. Nice. Some of these new properties included the St. Louis Cathedral, Presbytere, Cabildo, and part of the Marigny Estate in Jackson Square. The mansion that was once home to a wealthy plantation owner was later purchased by another Pierre, Pierre Antoine Lepardi Jordan. Sorry. Okay. It was Pierre's that are all the names. We're through the John Baptiste. Pierre's take over from and here now on out. It's the Pierre era. It's the Pierre era. <laughs> the era of Pierre. <laughs> this Pierre wanted to build his dream home. And he did just that by restoring the burnt property to its former glory, utilizing the portions that were still standing. Mm. Pierre loved his home, and his family loved it as well. But that didn't stop him from betting it during a game of high-stakes poker one night in 1814. Cute. A game that he lost. Super cute. Could you imagine if your husband already had a gambling problem? And then he came home and he was like, hey, <laughs> hey, sorry, we got to leave. <laughs> I played this fun prank. <laughs> I lost. I did a bad thing. I did a really bad thing. You're going to need to go and pack your satchels. We, I hope uh, this wasn't your dream. Because I we, just crushed mine. <laughs> we got to go find a new dream. As they say, entangled. Yeah. <laughs> Wanna go out west? (laughs) Let's go out east. Pierre was understandably devastated by the loss of the home that he and his family adored so much. (laughs) Okay, obviously not that much if he was willing to bet against it. So instead of abandoning it and allowing the other poker player to claim their prize, he made the bold and unconventional decision to complete suicide inside the home. Okay, that's a weird escalation. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to live here forever. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's dark. Something tells me his gambling was a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah. If he decided to commit suicide instead. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. would say he probably had that problem for a while. You wouldn't yeah. just bet your house on the first game that you're playing. No. Not much is known about the property until nine years later in 1823, when the president of the Louisiana State Senate and director of the Louisiana Bank, Julian Poydras, purchased the residence. Julian, who was born on April 3, 1740, 
in Pays de la Loire, France, updated the home with the best furniture and fineries that money could buy. Because, mm. you know, he's the director of the bank. Yeah. He's got to show off his bank stuff. Mm-hmm. This is what I buy from the bank. <laughs> A year later, however, Julian became ill and died on June 23rd, 1824, at the age of 84. Nice. That's a good long life. At the time of his death, he owned six large plantations and more than 500 slaves. That's insane. Six? Mm-hmm. Jeez. In his will, he granted a pension to all of his slaves that were 60 years or older and freed the rest of them. Sounds like America. Julian was also one of the first philanthropists in Louisiana, founding the Female Orphan Asylum and Poydras Asylum, as well as donating large sums of money to Point Coupe Parish for education, earning him the moniker of, quote, the father of public education in Louisiana, end quote. Nice. I'm sure he was proud of it at the time. I'm sure he was. According to Muriel's website, Julian had a wife and a family, but he never married. He did have heirs, but there is no mention of the name of his fiance, who he apparently was unable to marry because her family was unable to provide a dowry. That's a archaic rule. Mm-hmm. I think even then. Yep. It was said that his heirs continued to use the property as their city home, went away from the plantations and throughout the Civil War. Following the war, yeah. the, the Poydras family lost their wealth and power, so the home had to be sold. Yeah, that makes sense. Theodore Lavou purchased the property in 1881 and owned it until 1891. Following the Civil War, the older French families in the French Quarter soon found themselves being replaced by the American sector in the Garden District and Uptown. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. Living in the French Quarter soon became an unfashionable choice. And as a result, the homes began to fall into disrepair and decay. Uh-oh. A man named Peter Lepari, who had become quite wealthy purchasing and selling oranges, nice. purchased the building and remodeled it so it could be repurposed as a number of commercial businesses. All right. This included a restaurant in part of the building, and the Alec Lanloy Saloon on the corner by Jackson Square was opened in 1895. The saloon quickly became home to the Royal Club, which was a drinking club of New Orleans elites. Oh. So it went from kind of super fancy to disrepair to now it's, it's fancy again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Over the years, this space would be bought and sold several more times, operating as a pasta factory, grocery store, <laughs> the spaghetti factory restaurant, nice. chart house restaurant, and Heritage Hall before being branded Muriel's Jackson Square in 2001 after an extensive renovation to restore it to its former glory. That's awesome. I love that it was a spaghetti factory twice. Right? We make it the pasta. We still have the pasta that we make. <laughs> you eat at the pasta. If we go back to Pierre-Antoine Lepardi Jordan, back when the property was a home, Pierre ended his life on the second floor. The second floor that was also where slaves were supposedly quartered in their previous in the previous building. Today, the second floor is home to Muriel's Seance Lounge. Great. What a great spot for that. 
a space that was created due to the spiritual energies that continue to remain there. Yeah, why not open it up more? Good job. <laughs> come on, come on. Thin in the veil. Let's do this. You like the spaghetti? <laughs> come here. It's said that the ghost of Pierre, who often appears as, quote, a glimmer of sparkly light, end quote. He would. He's so sparkly. He's like a vampire. <laughs> Spends the bulk of his time on the second floor but he has been seen from time to time in the restaurant below. Eating pasta. Eating all the pasta. So much ghost pasta. <laughs> Where is that spaghetti going? <laughs> Don't look, Jimmy. Don't look. Reports of his presence in the restaurant often coincide with objects floating throughout the restaurant. He's taking stuff from him. This is nice. I want it on the second floor with me. <laughs> I just picture like salt and pepper shakers just kind of floating through the air. Like they're just kind of walking. <laughs> And a little, like, vat of glittery light. <laughs> oh, this is my pepper. <laughs> oh. Hi, Pierre. Bye, Pierre. <laughs> Not the paprika. Pierre. Pierre doesn't seem to be the only spirit that calls Muriel's home. Mm. In the courtyard bar, a rather rambunctious spirit is said to roam. Since 2001, at least three specific occasions have been noted where bar glasses were hurled 12 feet from the bar all the way to the brick wall on the opposite side of the courtyard, where they were smashed and broken. Rambunctious is the term they used, huh? Yeah. What a rascal. What a little scamp. <laughs> Additionally, a full bottle of wine was also said to have been flung at the wall in a similar fashion. Okay. I said, Merlot! <laughs> Eyewitnesses that include patrons, the co-owner of Muriel's, as well as managers, have all attested that no living human was responsible for any of these events. There are different theories on who or what is breaking things in the courtyard. Some believe it is some of Pierre's previous servants letting off steam, you know, as one does in the afterlife. I mean, that's the only acceptable version. Perhaps previous owners or patrons trying to pull a prank, or perhaps Pierre himself. Yeah, those two are inappropriate. I'm hoping for the slaves that are just like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Disrespect your surroundings! <laughs> the International Society for Paranormal Research has dedicated Muriel's as one of the most haunted sites in New Orleans. Nice. A number of paranormal investigations have taken place there over the years. Reports and findings have included inexplicable shadows, disembodied voices, knocking mm -hmm. sounds in the seance room, and a woman's voice. No. Visitors to the restaurant have spotted white mist in the shape of a man floating in midair before disappearing altogether. It's Pierre, <laughs> before he takes his glittery light shape. <laughs> <laughs> Others have heard voices whispering in their ears when no one was around them. Absolutely not. Yeah, I hate that a lot. Absolutely not. I would rather you hurl a wine bottle in my general direction than whisper in my ear. Yep. No. In an effort to keep everyone happy, the staff of Muriel's set a reserved table for Mr. Joydon every evening, complete with a bottle of wine and fresh bread. You know, it. just in case. No. And that is the story of the history of Muriel's Jackson Square. And there 
rambunctious ghosts, I guess. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's super dark when he's like, I lost the house. And she's like, what? And he's like, bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, that escalated very quickly. Like, that was yeah. not where I was anticipating that was going to go. Nope. I thought that it was, was going to be twist. like a... Thought it was gonna be like a shoot, shoot, gun, gun type of situation. Like yeah. you can't take my house, gun, gun, shoot, shoot. But no, nope. it's something completely different. Yeah. Hello, my name is Anne Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life: YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. This week's podcast plug is Armchair Historians. The concept of Anne-Marie's podcast is simple. It all starts with a question. What's your favorite history? Each week, she speaks with someone new authors, historians, musicians, fellow podcasters, and more to dive into different aspects of history from a unique perspective. You've heard Anne-Marie on an episode of Can You Crack the Cramport? Mm -hmm. She is lovely. I highly recommend checking out her show, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. Nice. And we have a listener question this week. (gasps) Wow, okay. Coming in with the save, listener Elizabeth wants to know, what secret conspiracy would you like to start? Oh, <laughs> I've got a favorite. Do it. Um, diabetes can be <laughs> a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> I convinced a guy, a drunk guy at a bar once that that was the case. So he would leave me alone and it worked. <laughs> so I know it checks out. I know people can believe it. Oh my God. I forgot about that. I know my greatest triumph in rebuffing another's advances. That is a good one. Yeah. Although, like, kind of to the detriment of me a little bit, but I also don't care. I already have diabetes. I might as well have fun. (laughs) Well, and it's okay to make fun of diabetes if you have diabetes. If you did not not have diabetes and you tried to use that joke, that'd be in very poor taste. Yes. Yes, that would not be great. But it's okay because you you have it, so it's okay for you to say it. Self-deprecation. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's self-deprecating humor. I need to cope. (laughs) (laughs) Give me this. (laughs) Um, That skeleton keys were made from actual skeletons. Ooh, dark. Were originally made from actual skeletons. They're literally opening boxes of hearts. (laughs) You've got the actual key to my heart because it came from my rib cage. <laughs> <laughs> Wee! I wheeled it down Ow. myself. <laughs> owie, owie, owie. I had it whittled down and cast in metal just for you. Yep. It's my heart bone. <laughs> <laughs> like a wishbone, but for my heart. <laughs> Ouch. 
Don't break it at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Achy breaky heart. You should have more calcium. <laughs> That's why I got these bird bones. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what's wrong with me? Okay. On that note, what's something good you'd like to share this week? Something good this week. I just had a really nice weekend, actually. So we had my lovely future stepdaughter over, and she's absolutely lovely and phenomenal. And she met her future cousins, mm-hmm. and it went really well. Yep. I was I was your youngest emotional support person for the first part, but they were able to break the ice over some good old Minecraft and mm-hmm. Polly Pockets and Pokemon, as you do. When Pokemon is the great uniter. It really is, you know, though. Everyone knows yeah. what Pikachu is, so. Everyone. And also, I have to say, there's that pillow that your youngest has with uh, the Pikachu pillow. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly unsettled at how small its head is compared to its pillow body. Yeah, I can, I can picture just, it now. It's just too small enough to be unsettling. Well, it's proportional. Because it can't use its head. It's proportional when you fold it down to be like the actual Pikachu stuffed animal. But when yeah, you f- but... when you flatten it out to be a pillow, yes, the head is way too small. Like way too small. It looks like um like a flying squirrel, like yeah. a sugar baby, sugar glider, like a sugar baby candy. Like an incredible an incredibly obese sugar glider. Pika Pika gonna fly onto your bed. Lay your head on me. <laughs> Pika <sighs> But yeah, that's my good thing. I got to see you guys and it was really nice. Mm-hmm. How about you? So as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I got to go to New Orleans last week. It was an experience. I didn't get to go to do all the things that I wanted to do because, I mean, obviously I was there for work. So, but we did get to, my coworker and I got to explore the French Quarter a little bit on Bourbon Street. We walked over to Jackson Square, like I mentioned, Mm -hmm. to Cafe du Mont, where we got beignets and coffee coffee with the chicory, and it was really good. They had like a, a band that was playing. It was pretty sweet. Nice. So it was a lot of fun. There were a couple places I would have liked to go to that we just did not have time or it just didn't work out, mm-hmm. which just means I'll have to go back again in the future sometime. Oh, darn. I think I think I was unsettled by like how narrow the streets were and how like crunched together everything was. I will say one of my coworkers before we left said, you will smell things in New Orleans that you have never smelled before. And you will not smell anywhere else. Nope. And so I jokingly told my coworker that I traveled with to be aware of that. And as soon as we hit Bourbon Street, I was like, I now understand. Yep. I now understand. Yep. And that will never leave me. It's a unique experience. It is. Mm -hmm. But like I said, it wasn't all bad. It was... No, it's generally a lovely place. The conference we went to was great. Everyone there... Mm -hmm that we encountered were very lovely, very polite. Yeah, nice place. Would visit again. I will say, I can't remember what neighborhood it was in, but we went to this amazing restaurant called 
vessel and mm-hmm. it's in a church, an old church. Nice. And it's in like a little neighborhood. So there's really nothing around it. And the drinks were great. The food was amazing. My coworker tried hush puppies for the first time. That's a good place to try hush puppies for the first time. They were amazing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would highly recommend if you were able to go to Vessel when you're in New Orleans. It is a treat. Vessel Nola. Oh, it's pretty. It's really pretty. The inside, like the bar is really cool. It's not super big. I think they do have an outdoor patio, but we sat inside. I liked it. I nice. dug it. All right, shall we? We shall. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We're also on YouTube if you'd like to subscribe. We have a P.O. box if you'd like to send us something in the mail. You can do so at yieldcrime, P.O. box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota 55092. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Submit your questions, story ideas, funny gifts. Mm-hmm. Just say hi. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show but you can't do so financially, you can leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, and Spotify. And this week's review comes from the Tennis Podcast over on Podchaser. Hello, fellas. Hello. I'm assuming this is from Nick. And he says... There's a lot of true crime podcasts out there, but this one stands out. Lindsay and Madison are amazing, hilarious hosts who bring to light true crime stories not covered by most other podcasts. Easy subscribe. Nice. Love you, Nick. Thank you. That's so nice. You're one of the good ones. (laughs) If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee for a one-time donation. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month to get early ad-free access to all of our content. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to rep our merch, you can head on over to our TeePublic. And just a reminder that the entire month of June, we will have our Pride merch back in stock. And all proceeds from our merch sales this month will be donated to the Church of Prismatic Light which is an LGBTQIA plus focused religion that values the true self. Awesome. And we will have a link to their website in the show notes as well, in case you're interested in learning more about them. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.